Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11, two Sundays ago we covered chapters 9 through the first part of 11, uh, covering sort of the, the tail end of Solomon's life, and so this Sunday we'll cover the rest of chapter 11, picking up in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom, for when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, He struck down every male in Edom, for Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad had fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage to his sister of his own wife, the sister of Topanes, the queen. And the sister of Topanes bore him Jenuboth, his son, whom Topanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenuboth was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh, But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. And he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerada, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. And Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. 
And the man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house, house of Egypt, house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shelonite, found him on the road. And now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. And then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment and was on him, or that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they've not walked in my ways, doing right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon all and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of, book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. And thank you for speaking through it. And thank you for writing it, writing it several thousand years ago for us in this room this evening. And now we would pray that you, that you would speak through it uh, in the preaching of your word and that you would apply it to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of the older that you get, the more years that go by, the more mature that you become after just having witnessed more life, you realize there's that, that category of thing that is good for you, but it's not good to you. 
Uh, you kind of remember this as a kid, right? The, the category that, that, that kind of broccoli and Brussels sprouts fits in, right? That, that they're, they're good for me, but they're not good to me. They don't taste really good. Perhaps for many of us, you know, exercise is still in that category and uh, maybe other vegetables, maybe salad and Brussels sprouts and broccoli still lie in that category. Uh, maybe it's you know, that category that's kind of illustrated by the, by the cough syrup that you had to take as a kid, or at least I did, right? The, the one that's not chalky and bubblegum flavored, the nasty one that just turns your mouth inside out whenever you drink it, right? Good for me, but, but not necessarily good to me. I think um, what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 11 and how the rest of the Bible interprets 1 Kings chapter 11, we see that that God's fatherly discipline fits into that, that same category as well. It's something, something that's good for me, but perhaps not good to me. Something that, that doesn't really, isn't really pleasurable. Something that's not really delightful. Yes, it, it helps me. It's good for me in the long run, but, but perhaps in the short run, it's very distasteful. And I say God's fatherly dis- discipline because... There is a sort of discipline from God the Father to those who don't belong to Him that's not good for me nor good to me, but within the category of being in Christ, of being bought by the blood of Jesus and being adopted into the family of God and being sons and daughters of the Most High, so much so that we have an inheritance waiting for us as heirs. It's God's fatherly discipline. It's good for me, even though it may not be good to me. So this evening, that's kind of the main thing that I want to kind of drive, uh, drive for us this afternoon. The, 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 the main point of 1 Kings chapter 11, or at least the back, the back half of it, is that God's discipline, the Father's discipline, is a good thing. And first... The Father's discipline is good because it's dependable. God actually does what He says that He does. We say that all the time in the context of God's promises. As we read through the Bibles and as we preach through books, as uh, as we study the Scriptures, we realize that God always does what He says He's going to do. Right? God does what He says He's going to do. He keeps His promises. He's dependable. He's Uh, You can count on him. There's a certain consistency when we're dealing with God the Father. He always does what he says he's going to do. And his discipline fits into that category as well. The book that immediately precedes this one, the book of Samuel, particularly 2 Samuel in chapter 7, God promises to David, "I I I will make for you a son and I will put him on the throne, and he will reign there forever, and he will be the one who builds me a house. David, I'm going to build you a house of descendants, of people that you can look to, a house of, of, of faithful men that you can look to, but, but I will put one son on the throne, and he will be the one to reign over all Israel. The book of Kings up to this point has been God's faithfulness in fulfilling that particular promise. But what also comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is verses 14 and 15, where God promises, speaking of this son of David, that I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, 
And with the stripes of the Son of Man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So when we, first, when we, when we come to 1 Kings 11, the first thing that we realize is that this situation is no surprise to God. In fact, God's already said that, that when this happens, he's going to discipline David's son, Solomon. God promises that, that, that what, what I say I'm going to do, that I will do. And his discipline fits inside of that promise. That God promised David that when he departs from me, when he sins against me, I will discipline him. I will bring him back to me. And so that's what we see happening here in 1 Kings chapter 11. Is God's discipline being good because it's dependable. It's something that's not new to him. He's doing what he said he would do as he disciplined Solomon here in this chapter. So we see God's discipline being dependable in, in time, from time past. We also see God emphasizing the, the surety of his discipline being real in time future. As we look particularly at verse 11... And God responds to what's going to be the outcome of Solomon taking for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines? What's going to be the outcome of him worshiping the gods of the Canaanites? Well, verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes as I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. What does God promise? What does God say that he's going to do? He says that I'm going to tear the kingdom from you, but he says, I will surely tear it. In other words, that in the Hebrew, that's I will tear, tear. It's emphasized. God's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, and particularly as we read further, from the next generation, from his son. God's discipline its dependability is rooted in time past. It's sure in time future, but it's also here present in, time, in the time that's going on in 1 Kings 11. It's, t- it's here in time present. And the fact that, that it's going to happen, that God's discipline is going to happen in the future is further driven home by the evidence of it here in this particular passage. We, we could read verses 9 through 13 and say, well, oh, Solomon doesn't get what he deserves for his iniquity. He doesn't get what he deserves for his sin. But we actually, if you read on into the chapter as we did, you realize that he does. In verse 14, the Lord, right, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of the people of Israel, raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. It's the Lord who's raising up this adversary for Solomon. The same thing said in verse 23. God also raised up as an adversary to him Rezin, the son of Eliada. And these men did harm. It says in verse uh, 25 that that Rezin did harm as Hadad had done. These men agitated Solomon. They bothered him. They got to him. And God raised them up. And the same implication, the same thing's true of, of Jeroboam. God comes to Jeroboam. God commissions the, the, the prophet to go and to speak with him. God brings it about. 
God has known and been planning for Solomon's departure from his faith for quite some time. We can see that as, as the events that preceded these men coming to power, are, are God situated them in time past. But they're bearing fruit now. God's discipline is, is dependable. It's, it's sure. It's going to happen. It's promised. As the passage we just read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, and Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, say that this, this is the nature of God. This is who He is, that He disciplines those whom He loves. And if you are being disciplined, it's proof that the Lord loves you. It's proof that the Lord loves you. So God disciplines me because he loves me. And his discipline for me is just as dependable as every blessing and every promise that's written in the Bible. Because this is the way that the Lord, this is one of the mechanisms that the Lord uses to bring our all-encompassing salvation to fruition. Right? He in his wisdom and his infinite wisdom and his power and his sovereignty has a, elected his people in time past. How do we make it to glorification? How do we make it from election to glorification? This is one of the mechanisms that he uses to perfect our salvation. This is one of the, the mechanisms that he uses to persevere, to preserve his saints, his people. And I need that. Because if Scripture teaches us anything, if Solomon himself teaches us anything, it's just how weak the flesh really is. Right? As the kind of the wording of the confession that the confession uses that that corruption still remains. Though we are a justified people, though we are a sanctified people, though we are an adopted people, it's not until we are glorified that 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 corruption still remains. That the flesh is weak. And so we can see in Solomon a man who's prone to drift. We talked about last time and first earlier in this chapter. How did we get here? It's by one compromise at a time. I know how weak my flesh is. And therefore I need God to be a father to me. I need God to be a father to me. Even when it's painful. There's a second point. Is that God's discipline is good because it is, it is painful. It hurts. God had, had promised David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 14 and 15 that, that, that I will discipline this son should he ever commit iniquity uh, towards me. And God's discipline for Solomon's uh, is in some ways, it, it's put off until a later, a later date, right? It, we learn in, in verses uh, 12 and 13, then again later on in the chapter, that, that yet for the sake of David, it's going to be until the next generation that the Lord tears this kingdom away. And then we learn in verse 13 that he's not going to, care, to tear it away, all of it. He's only going to tear away ten of the tribes. And that again might lead us to the conclusion, well, Solomon's discipline wasn't that bad in the first place. Right? He didn't get what he deserved. God didn't discipline him hard enough. Again, 
would argue the contrary. Because God disciplines Solomon not only in the future through the generations that would, to, that would come after him, but also in the present, in real life, and in real time with real adversaries. In verses 14 to 22, we learn of this Hadad the Edomite, how he becomes the king of Edom, which is located to the south of the people of Israel. And we learn in verses 23 to 25 that, that Rezin, the son of Eliada, becomes uh, the king of, or the ruler over Damascus, basically the ruler over all of Syria, which is to the north of the people of Israel. And then we learn in verses 26 to 40 that Jeroboam, uh, what does it say, that, that he, he lifted up his hand against King Solomon. Jeroboam becomes a problem from within. And so what we see is a digression in the book of Kings, especially in these first 11 chapters. If you remember way back into the good old days in chapter 4, verse 24, what, did, what was the, the, the estate of the people of Israel? That there was peace on all sides around him. Solomon's wisdom was such, and God had blessed the people as such, that there was peace all around Solomon. And here, what we have is, is an illustration of calamity on all sides, adversaries on all sides, from without, from the north and the south, and from within, from Jeroboam himself. God has raised up adversaries everywhere that Solomon turns. And perhaps the cherry on top for a man as wise and powerful as Solomon is that Solomon's the one who puts Jeroboam, who gives him everything that he needs to do what God asks or what God offers. Solomon chooses him. Solomon promotes him. Solomon gives him the power base by putting him over a certain number of people. Solomon gives Jeroboam everything that he needs unknowingly to do exactly what the Lord has held out for him to do. And we see that by verse 40, it's become quite an effective tool that the Lord has used to, to basically drive Solomon mad. Up to this point, Jeroboam has done nothing wrong. Right? All he was doing was faithfully leading this construction crew here uh, in Jerusalem, and he leaves out of town for a weekend. He's confronted by a prophet. The Lord speaks through the prophet and offers him ten tribes of the kingdom. And, and then we're told that he, left, that he leaves. He goes to Egypt because Solomon tries to kill him. Why does Solomon try to kill him? Why does it seem like Solomon's been driven mad by this event? It's because God's discipline for Solomon has been so painful. It's been so dreadful. Everything that he's worked for for his entire life is being sort of dismantled in front of him. And God's discipline is good for that reason. It's good because it's dreadful. It's good because it's painful. We see that it was painful for Solomon, we, and we know from our confession of faith a moment ago, that, that God sometimes arranges things in our lives. He uses certain things in our lives to make it painful for us too. 
Yes, God still works in, in real time, in real life, not to discipline his children when they go astray. How does he do that? Well, sometimes it's by just providential life events. We see this kind of um, manifested in a certain way in First Kings chapter eleven, verse thirty, when the Corinthians or First First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse thirty, when the Corinthians are coming to the table uh, in an unprepared way. Right? They're coming in a, in a reckless way, in a sinful way. And what does Paul say? He says, "This is why some of you are dead. This is why some of you are sick." God used providential events in their lives to, to discipline them for their, for their sin. Another example might be, you know, if I, if I commit some heinous crime that's, that's worthy of conviction and worthy of a jail sentence, then I have to go to jail. That's one of God's mechanisms, even, in, even out in the world, for, for uh, shaping, for disciplining His children. I still have to undergo that, um, that punishment. But he also uses the church, and especially the church, what we call church censures, which we'll go through here in a few weeks in, uh, in the confession. Sometimes the Lord uses his officers to, to admonish us when we sin, when we depart from the Lord, when we commit iniquity, when, when the officers of the church tell us we're fearful, we're feared of, for your life. Right? We're, we're worried for your soul. You need to stop committing whatever sin that you're committing. Or maybe he uses suspension from the sacraments when we are withheld from, from communing with the rest of the body in the Lord's Supper. When everyone else in the room gets to partake of the Lord's Supper but me. Right? That's dreadful. That's painful. He uses excommunication in the same way. It's, 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 it's obvious in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that this is the purpose of excommunication, that, that, so that the sinner might be reclaimed, so that he might experience uh, just the devil's wrath and, and the iniquity of the world and, and realize that, that life is only found in Christ. What more dreadful thing could happen to me other than I might be cut off from the most beautiful and glorious and magnificent people on the face of the earth, the church? That's dreadful. But it's designed to be that way. God in his wisdom uses these things to show us very tangibly, very in front of our face. Lord, these things are, my my sin is terrible. The dreadfulness, the painfulness of the discipline is is designed to point us to the reality of the, the emptiness of our sin and to the fullness of Christ. It's designed to show us our sin is empty. And to show us the power and the wonderful blessing of being washed in the blood of Christ. It's the design of God's discipline to be so dreadful that it drives us from our sin and back unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only designed to inflict pain. It's not only designed to hurt us. It's not only designed to make, it, to make us miserable. That's, that's, it's all of those things, but that's not all of it. It's designed to drive us to Christ. It's designed to be redemptive. Because it's fatherly discipline. 
And the father wants his children to come back home, which is the third aspect of God's discipline is that it's gracious, it's redemptive. God makes Solomon miserable now, but but we also see God's grace kind of displayed in the way that he, number one, delays the worst part of the discipline until the next generation, but also, number two, he doesn't take the whole kingdom from Solomon's hand, right? He leaves the the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin for Solomon and his descendants uh, to rule. God's discipline is gracious because we see at the very center of his discipline is his steadfast love, his commitment to the people of Israel, his commitment to his children, his commitment to those whom he's bought with the blood of Christ. His love for Solomon has led him to discipline him in the first place. And his love for David and Jerusalem leaves him, or leads him to delay it and to lessen it. So God's discipline is gracious in the fact that there's, that there's delay and lessening because of his steadfast love. It's also gracious in the fact that he promises never to take, or he, say, he promises not to take away the kingdom forever. Verse 39 tells Jeroboam through Ahijah the prophet, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, because of Solomon's sins, but not forever. In other words, God's, God's steadfast love, his love for his children, his love for his people. informs how he disciplines them. And it's gracious in the way that that it's not going to last forever. This is what one commentator calls affliction, not abandonment. God's not leaving his people to go off into their sin. He's not leaving them altogether. No, he's disciplining them because he wants them to come back. His discipline is restoring them. And the same is true for us. When we perhaps fall into grievous sin and commit iniquity against the Lord, whatever discipline may follow is not that the Lord may leave us or abandon us. It's not a sign that He's left us or abandoned us. It's not a sign that He hates us. It's His being a faithful Father. In loving his children. As we can think back over the, the history of our lives, some of us have a few decades to reflect on. We can see, perhaps most of us at least, that there were periods, there were points in time where we perhaps strayed from the Lord. And the Lord used his fatherly discipline to bring us back. He used his fatherly discipline to show us the emptiness of our sin, the emptiness of the world, and to draw us back to Christ. Some of us can remember just how miserable we were. And we can remember that miserability showing us the beauty and magnificence of Christ. And perhaps some of us maybe are witnessing it now. Some of us perhaps maybe miserable and in pain. Let me offer an application, if that's you. Whether it's 
you've experienced God's discipline in the past or whether you're experiencing it now, two applications. Number one, don't waste it. Remember what the Lord taught you. Remember what the Lord is teaching you. Don't waste His discipline and and chase and squander your life for some sin. No, return to Christ. His blood will cover your sin. The second application that I would make is to let's maybe work really hard at finishing well, no matter how we've started. Perhaps the first half of our lives have been a wreck. There's an opportunity on the table to finish well, no matter how we've started. To finish well, to be faithful to Christ, just as He is faithful to us. Because as we see that the, the Father's discipline is good, because it's his steadfast love that's driving. It's, it's his steadfast love for his people in Christ that's empowering, that, that, that's the fuel for this discipline. No matter how painful it may be, we know that the nature of the Father's love is such that, that he just wants his children to come home. That's what he wants for Solomon. That's why he's disciplining him. He just wants Solomon to come back home. may we be a church that reflects the love of the Father in that respect. We just want our children to come back home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Oftentimes when we think of your faithfulness, we think of it in terms of you taking care of us and you blessing us and you promising to do all things for good and you giving us an eternal inheritance and the new heavens and new earth, we less often perhaps think of your faithfulness in terms of, of discipline. But we thank you because we know how sick our hearts really are. And we know, Lord, just how wonderful and refreshing it is to be washed in the blood of Christ, to be forgiven of our iniquity, and to stand before you as your sons and daughters, fully righteous and holy before your throne, clothed with the garments of Christ. So bless your people, Father. We thank you for your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen.